Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jones, Bowden, he's got it, England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. Hello and welcome to the Analyst Inside Cricket. Three England stars on today's show, well actually two, and then one comes up uh, on Thursday night in our virtual cricket club. We can hear from Joss Butler, who's going to talk about England's 3-0 whitewash of the South Africans down in Cape Town. And also, we'll hear from Alistair Cook, who was our guest in the virtual cricket club the other day. And he talks uh, with great interest about his life, uh, batting, the art of batting, the art of run-making, and also predictions for how England might go in Australia uh, in a year's time, because it is, of course, 10 years almost exactly since the beginning of that great Ashes series of 2010-11, captained by Andrew Strauss, which England, of course, triumphed in, and Cook was the star man. So we definitely sort of reflect on that epic series in our conversation with Alistair Cook. That's coming up a little bit later, but first, we should just congratulate England on a tremendous performance in South Africa, in both Cape Town and Paul. A uh, couple of slightly tricky run chases, but they made mincemeat of it, Simon, didn't they? The hardest one was the one on Sunday, it seemed to me, a low-scoring game on, on a difficult pitch, and it, it looked as though they weren't going to get there. But uh, David Milan played uh, really well again. I mean, his career for England has been remarkable. This is a guy who is now that he's got the highest points rating ever in the history of international T20. I talk about the history. Okay, it's not been going you know, that long compared to the other formats. Of course it hasn't. But I mean, that is that is incredible for a guy who's come in. He, you know, he's really, I, I think he, you know, he played test cricket. He's played one one day international. It's really bizarre. You, you almost feel like if there was a sort of crossover between the two, he'd be a really successful one day international player. And he actually once told me, he said, I think my best format is, is one day international. So it's, it's, you know, 50 over cricket. But you know, he's got an Ashes 100 and he's top of T20 rankings. He played really well on Sunday. And I mean, last night, I mean, even outshone Josh Butler. Mm. He, he does like the, 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 the overseas matches more, doesn't he? I mean, of course, he, he shone in that rather failed Ashes uh, campaign a couple of years ago when he made 100 in Perth and, and looked, he looks more comfortable, I think, on overseas pitches where there seems to be a bit more bounce but maybe that's a that's a sort of a, an imagination I don't know interestingly um that one of the things uh, one of the features about that game uh, was England's team analyst that's Nathan Lehman of course actually transmitting messages out to the middle to Owen Morgan during England's fielding 
which kind of it's caused a, a bit of a stir. You know, a lot of people thinking it's a bit uh, anti the spirit of cricket. Uh, other people saying it's quite an interesting development. It uh, brought up comparisons with Bob Woolmer in mm. the 99 World Cup when, of course, he got Hansi Cronje to wear an earpiece and sent him messages from the dressing room, uh, ideas for uh, bit what to do in the field. I don't know what you think, Simon. I, I actually think it's quite an interesting idea. In, in a way, it's almost bringing T20 slightly closer to football. And a lot of people would be muttering and, and you know grumbling about that. But because it brings the coach closer to the live action, I mean, already we have timeouts in T20, which allows the coach to come onto the field and, and maybe give his ideas and use some of the, the data that they've got to inform what they do next. But to actually have messages sent out from the dressing room during the game. I don't know. I think it's quite creative. What do you think? I haven't made my mind up yet, actually. I, I've been thinking about this you know, for the last sort of 18, 20 hours uh, since it happened. I, I, I think that, in a way, there's, there's part of me who thinks, so what? You know, it's, it's T20 cricket, so anything goes, really. It's all about innovation. That's fine. I mean, there is that sort of... Rule in cricket, almost that you know the captain is the in sole charge when he goes out on the field. Having said that, you know you go off, say in test match, you go off for lunch and tea at the end of the day's play, and you have a regroup and a rethink, and the the coach gives his input. Then I suppose it's about when the when the match is actually going on. Just on, just very quickly on timeouts, I think they should get rid of timeouts in T Twenty cricket. Actually, I, I know that's an innovation. I just think it slows the game down too much. I, I actually really enjoyed. I watched the IPL a lot, of the IPL of course, and commentated on it a bit. I actually really enjoyed not having timeouts. It, it, it just interrupts the flow of the game and the South Africa-England series was so much better for, for not having them. But then, of course, you know, coaches perhaps want to get their input or the analysts want to get their input to the captain. The other thing I was thinking about, though, is Owen Morgan is supposed to be this really sort of cool, calculating England captain. You know, he's guided them to a World Cup. Does he need all this? You know, is it a help to him? I suppose we'll, we'll find out when we eventually get to, to speak to him about it. Well, in fact, uh, while you say that, why don't we hear from Joss Butler uh, what he thought of it and what it was, uh, the what the origin of it was, and also he talks about the importance of, of England's consistency of sticking with the same group in this T20 uh, tournaments or various tournaments, and how it parallels the way they were very consistent in their selection for the 50-over team, which led to a World Cup, of course. So first, he talks a little bit about the Nathan Lehman interaction off from off the field? I think a, a little bit of an experiment for Owen and Nathan. Um, they obviously work closely together, um, you know, working on analysis and, and things. And I think just a, a little bit of help to sometimes a little bit of a suggestion of, of what matchups are, are going on in, um, at the game. But um, no, Owen's one of the, the best captains in the world and um, he's a fantastic instinctive captain as well. So um, there's a nice balancing act going on. I thought the role clarity we had as a 50 over side, um, you know, pretty settled team that, you know, uh, by the conditions nearly picked itself. Um, so that was a, a great place to be. And that's what we're trying to build in, in the T20 side. Obviously, it was fantastic for these three games to have all our players available. Um, obviously, the T20 guys go off and play in, in franchise tournaments, which is, is a huge bonus as well. Um, and that brings a lot of confidence to the team. You know, someone like Joffre Archer being the MVP of the, the biggest T20 tournament in the world um, gives us a lot of confidence um, as a dressing room other guys performing so well in, in different tournaments um, all bodes really well for us as a side 
One thing to make clear is that England were given permission uh, to use these sort of codes by the match referee, you know, and it was all passed through the anti-corruption, all that sort of thing. They were, they were given the go-ahead to do it. So, you know, clearly the ICC uh, seemed happy enough with it. And of course, the next thing is everyone would be trying to work out what the codes mean and you know, how it relates to what's going out on the field, a bit like trying to break a team's codes in a, in a rugby union match in the line-out. You remember your teams, I, mean, I used to play rugby in the past, you know, you'd have codes for which man you're going to throw the ball to in the line-out. And you, you always try to sort of dissect uh, decipher what the other team's codes were so you knew whether they were trying to throw the ball uh, it, it's fascinating to see how this develops actually and you know and and how it, you know whether other teams pick it up as well i, I mean I, I love innovation i do actually and you know there's part of me as well that you know i was there actually at hove in, in 1999 i was, I was reporting on yeah, that, so that was I. Cup yeah. match between in, india and south africa there's part of me was thought well you know that's a re- that's a really interesting idea but the ICC cracked down on it straight away, didn't they? I mean, you know, he was Hansi Cronje was told to remove, you know, remove the microphone in his ear uh, pretty quickly, and you know, they they got onto that straight away. But I mean, I really liked, actually liked Bob Warmer's uh, left field thinking. So I, 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 I yet yet to make my mind up, but I I do so I do actually quite applaud the innovation, the idea, you know, the ideas behind it, people thinking about how they can improve. I think that's fantastic for the, you know, for any sport really. Well, I'll tell you three things actually. Firstly. Forget the lack of timeouts because they're going to have to happen for broadcasters to earn their money back for the amounts, the huge amounts of money that they're paying for covering these T20 tournaments like the IPL, for instance. It's a great opportunity to play two minutes of commercials, which are very important Mm. to recoup their outlay. Second, don't think I don't don't think I don't know that. No, I know. I I know. I know exactly the the reason they're there. They're not. That's 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 why I feel a bit cynical about it because I don't think it necessarily is about getting information onto the field. Okay, it's an opportunity to do so. It is an opportunity to do so. But it's it's about it's about selling. It's it's as simple as that. It is partly, but you know, it has been used in constructive ways as well. Um, The second thing is that by sending messages from beyond the boundary using numbers and so on, at least save some time. And if you're interested in mm. saving time, it saves the, the 12th man being sent out onto the field with a set of gloves to pass a message on to the captain or the, the batting captain in this case, or perhaps the fielding captain if he's sent on to, uh, with a drink or sweaters or something like that. So it avoids that, uh, that pointless kind of myth of the fact that he's running on with any kit at all. He's just running on with information. Yeah, And the third, and the thing... third thing I'd say is, is that... Uh, you know, you talk about Hansi Cronje and Bob Wilmer and uh, miking up the coach to the captain and all that on the field. That's going to happen more and more. I think we already have players miked up. We have uh, stump mics picking up what the wicketkeeper is saying to the batsman or whatever. I think in the future, especially for T20, maybe this is sacrilege for test cricket, but for T20, I reckon we'll have the coach miked up, players miked up on the field and the conversation going on between them broadcast to everyone. That will happen more and more as T20, in a way, straddles that kind of um, gap between sport and entertainment and almost becomes a merging of the two. Anyway, let's move on to someone uh, a little bit more conventional in the cricketing sense, Alistair Cook, who uh, very kindly gave up his time the other day. Actually, we say that, but of course, he he didn't actually turn up on the right day originally. had a few technical problems, and so he didn't actually turn up on the, on the appointed day, but he did give us his time three days later to talk in depth about that Great Ashes series of 2010, about his amazing career, about his life as being a farmer, sheep farmer, 
now. And this was all in the virtual cricket club, which you can join us in by going to worldsbestcricketclub.com. We've already got uh, a lot of members who are enjoying not only the weekly live streams with leading players, but also the WhatsApp group we've created, the opportunity to win signed memorabilia, etc. all in aid of the Cricketers Trust, the Professional Cricketers Trust, which supports uh, players who've fallen on hard times. So it is a, a very valid club that we've created. And we'd love you to join us next Thursday night for Graham Swan, who's giving up his time for the same reasons. But let's go back to the Cook interview. And what we first asked him about was how is he coping with a second winter at home with no cricket? We're on the farm, so there is there's loads to do. Like today, we're moving moving sheep, we're scanning them tomorrow, and then we're sorting a bit of sheep out this afternoon. So there's plenty to do. But um, yeah, I, on a cricket side, I won't bat until beginning of February. Like first of Feb is when I will. So I, what, the last time I batted a bit of Lords in that Bob Willis Trophy game, and I'll pick up a bat on the first of Feb. Picking the bat up in December, in January. I don't get that excited about it, but when you've got February and the season's only two months away, there's something really to go for. And it's amazing how well you hit the ball after the first, probably the first five minutes, a bit rusty. That first net, you tend to hit the ball really well. It's amazing how well you hit it for that, for that half an hour. If you could kind of bottle that. Doesn't that suggest in a way that at times people practice too much, actually? Yeah, but because I mean, you do say that, but then to, to become good, you have to, I don't know anyone who can become good without practicing and doing, doing it. You have to do it, don't you? You have to do, you have to do the hours. There's no other way of doing it, really, in my opinion. The hard thing is practicing right and knowing what to do, practicing right, because um, I don't think it's any, you can't go away from the hard work. You can't go over the hours you need to hit the ball. But what you can, you can do is bark up the wrong tree and go in the wrong direction, you know. Just on a personal level, like, everyone remember, the, um, I changed my technique after the 2009 Ashes series at home. And, I, you know, I went really rigid. I don't even remember. Do you remember? I was really, really rigid and put my back, tried to copy, I suppose, a little bit like Gucci. Um, and actually, I got, you know, three test hundreds with it, a couple in Bangladesh and one against South Africa and Durban. But then that next summer, when the ball started moving around um, against Pakistan um, and Bangladesh, actually, it was in 2010, just before the Ashes, I just couldn't buy a run because it was just, you know, so for all that practice I was doing, I probably wasn't doing it the right way, but because it didn't, I didn't get any great results from the end of it. However, without doing that, without doing that circle, that six months of chasing a new technique, you don't realise that what technique you do have is what works best for you. So it's a really hard, it's a really interesting thing. And, and that, you know, you talk about experience in players, that is certainly one of them. We, we had Steve Smith, uh, we've had uh, interviewed recently, actually. And I mean, he's a bit of a sort of exception, I suppose, or a bizarre case. But he says that, you know, he falls asleep at night or tries to fall asleep at night. And he's still thinking about how am I going to get runs against Stuart Broad with a, a gully and two slips and a short extra cover and, you know, a couple of people on the leg side. So he's going to sleep, still, still visualising how to make runs Amazing. Were you were you like that in sort of in the middle of series and yeah, in the middle like, of mate, like, matches? Like I, I would say Steve Smith does it or seems to do it every night. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I would like. I think he's that engrossed in it and so yes, that's true. And like and, and you can and actually that's probably why he's probably one of the world's best batsmen, isn't he? Or well, if if not there with Coley, you'd say. In terms of that, that's just a different level. Obviously, during a series, during a uh, when you're in that okay, high performance mode, of course, you, whether I'd be going to sleep, think totally about it, but 
it's not very far away from your mind very often you know it's great when you do get that escapism when you are just talking with the lads and over a beer and in going out for dinner whatever but there's always when you're in such a big series the back of your mind's always there and I think that's why this summer I think would have been quite tough as a player and those bubbles because you just you just don't get that little escapism for that couple of hours at the end of the night you know just to try and forget about what's going to happen the next day because it is a you know it's an intense environment it's an amazing environment it's never everyone always talks about how intense and the bad stuff about it but it, it is what it is but in that in that social bubble that would have been quite hard just to get those, those cover hours when your brain not working but someone like steve smith he seems like he needs his brain to work and i don't think he sleeps much even though he I doesn't think he no the, he, he admitted the mattress that company doesn't he i think which is doing very well which is ironic but he doesn't sleep <laughs> Would you say that it's better to work on your strengths and sort of leave your weaknesses a little bit alone, or is it better to build up your weaknesses and therefore you're slightly neglecting your strengths? It's a brilliant, it's a brilliant question because um, everyone says you should work on your on your weaknesses, but we had a thing actually. Andy Flair brought it in that what what makes you a world class? What's your world class strengths as a player? So certain players, well, actually all of us, all of us, if you look to that top order of, of Cook, Strauss, Bell, Peterson, Collingwood, Pryor, if I've missed him, Trot, sorry. Every one of them had a world-class area. You know, you look, Matt Pryor, anything on, on a test match thing, just outside off stump, he would have the ability to, to get, you know, carve it through the offside. Ian Bell's cover drive, world-class. Jonathan Trot of his legs, world-class. Strauss, he cutting. Now, all that, and, and we would we focused on that a lot more in that period of our dominance than we did our weaknesses, and I think it's a case yeah. of it's a cert that we, we made a big shift on that. Obviously, you have to, and then what we did with our weaknesses was aware of them, be aware of them, and of course you've got to monitor them and you've got to keep training on them, but don't get fixated by trying to fix your weakness. If you're aware of them and how you do, it, like as you said, like I was fallible on the front foot especially early on in my career, early on in my innings, any innings, more fallible. Doesn't mean like, so there was, I would play a miss. I would, get, wouldn't get my weight into the ball like I should perfectly every single time. But it's being aware of it and, and realising the dangers when you do a play cover drive or, do you know what I mean? And it's been able to work that into your technique. I always looked at Dravid as a great example. You know, Dravid was, did kind of, um, fiddle with the ball outside of stump on the fourth, fifth stump. That's where you look to bowl at him. He was, and and he played it like you know. Sometimes he nicked it, of course, but he played it with some weird, like jabbing, like trying to ride it a little bit. Not totally in the perfect book, in the perfect technical book, but he knew how to deal with that, and he he kind of overcome it all the time. And I think it's a great way of looking about it. Work on your strengths as well, um, but no, hammer your strengths just as much as being aware of your weaknesses. How, how much do you have to work on your weaknesses then? I mean, that's really fascinating, actually, to concentrate on your strengths. But I mean, if your weakness is, is constantly getting you out, then well, of course. I mean, um, but there you are. That's the balance, isn't it? That is the absolute mm. balance of of what you're. You know, we spoke earlier about how many hours you do of training and stuff, or what you do of training. Trying to get that absolutely right and being a. But now I think, you know, the, the word experience about as a player, all the experience you've gained over you. I just know, you know, how how to manage my weakness, if that makes sense. I'll never get the perfect cover drive ever. And I know there'll be certain times I don't bend my front knee as well as I should do. But, you know, it's being aware of it and as long as it you can allow it into your technique. And 
So obviously it's slightly different from an 18, a 19 year old, 20 year old comes in. If you've got such a big area, say, just say, you can't play a short ball, then you've got an issue. Then you have to work on it. So you, it doesn't mean you've got to hook and pull everything for six and four, but you have to be able to, to be able to realize that weakness and make sure it doesn't become flag up so much that it becomes such a glaring thing for opposition to bowler. We asked for your questions as well, and lots of people with us this evening. It's great to have you uh, with us. Um, here's one from Keith. We, we, we saw your two, three, five earlier, and you, you made what was it, five double hundreds in in Test cricket. Uh, you, um, he says, what was your most accomplished non uh, three digit score that that stands out? And and innings where you actually weren't playing for a draw, where you you know you I know a good seventy was worth you know 180 or whatever it was potentially match winning. Yeah, I, I actually think probably in that last, was it the last series, maybe or the last series or this 2017, I got an 80 at the Oval. Um, and it, that was a seriously tough wicket against, I think it was Philander, Morkel, Morkel's definitely playing because he got me out. Philander, Morkel, whether Stain was there, but you know, a decent, decent attack. And the ball nibbled. The ball nibbled a long way throughout the, consistently out the game. And I got 80 odd. And I reckon that, was worth 140, 150 for in terms of, you know, I think I think did Stokes to get 100 in that game. You guys uh, is that know. the game? Is that in, in the last series that you played against South Africa? Yeah, yeah, you did. And he was coming down the wicket to Philander, wasn't he? Yeah, that was kind of day two, and I think I think we only played 40 odd over 50, maybe 50, 60 years on day one because there was some rain about. And I reckon that I actually had a bruise on my calf, on the front of my calf, which to get hit there. It's quite unusual. It must have nipped a long way. My, so I, I remember that innings. I think actually I worked bloody hard for an 80 there. And I you know, didn't get 100, but it was a satisfying. It wasn't very pretty at all. It was a proper grind. But um, yeah. But you remember, actually, I remember you saying that that sort of couple of years before you retired is probably what prompted you to retire. The ball moved around in England and was harder to bat against than you'd ever remembered, really. Yeah, I just, I mean, it just suited our style of bowling, didn't it? In terms of to, for us to win games of cricket. That was the way we had to go, and that's no like, disrespect for any of our bowlers or anything. They are they go above their their ability to hit line and length is incredible. You know, like you know James Anderson. We obviously know how good he is. Stuart Broad. That doesn't mean they can't bowl on flat ones at all. But we, you know, we'd always back ourselves to out bowl the opposition on those kind of wickets. Like would you, like Mitchell? You'd much rather face like Mitchell Johnson on those wickets than you would someone who can just hit the same area over and over and let the pitch do the work. And how good those guys are, they just don't miss length. So for us to get 20 wickets, you know, we struggled to get 20 wickets on an absolute road. We didn't have that point of difference in that time. We had a lot of people who could bowl 83 miles an hour, 84 miles an hour, hitting in. Like you can name, you know, Wokes, Broad, Anderson. You can just keep naming those bowlers. And we, so to win test matches, we went on on that kind of way and it became incredibly hard. And I, I do think the drainage system in England has made a massive, massive difference. To it. No groundsman has it. No groundsman they said, no, can't do. But it's the only common thing I can I, I, I think, which can be totally rubbish, that that drainage system in the outfield to get pitches, you know, which you either get a green wicket with the, key, the live grass on it, which then zips and carries through, or if you take it all off, all the grass off, it just becomes dead feather bed. And you get, you know, you do get some of the odd pitch, certainly where it just becomes a feather bed. It's impossible to bowl sides out. But when I, I swear, when I first remembered playing test cricket in England, even county cricket, the pitches were whiter and harder 
and the ball so the ball carried through a bit more so there's a bit in it for the bowlers and they didn't die uh, the pitches now they just die you know two heavy rollers and they just die they just don't carry to the slips and and that's the only thing I could think is a drain of systems obviously because people want to watch cricket and you know, when it's raining, they don't want to see puddles in the outfield. That that has to have had an impact on our square. So to keep the ball carrying to, to slips and all that, have to leave live grass on. You leave live grass on it, it nips around. And that's what I think the kind of conundrum is. Well, Keith says he, he thought that innings of 80, he said that was the one he had in mind when he when he asked the question. All right. Uh, just on, yeah. Alex Gaywood, uh, we, we talked about the 235. Was, was that your, this is his question, was that your, when you look back, was that your best innings? You said... You know, it was the innings where you thought I really delivered here for the first time. Was that was that the innings you when you someone said to you what was the best test innings you, you played? Would would that uh, be it, or was it or was it so flat that you thought you know actually I I made runs in a tougher situation? Well, I mean, I don't think it's too much of a tougher situation than you know the first yeah. test match of an Ashes series when you're two hundred seventeen exactly. runs behind and you'd fielded for two days. And that's what I'm just saying. So actually, I think like it's very easy to think I was a flat wicket. Because we got 517 for one, that it was easy. I, I you know, imagine. I remember going back to. You remember going out to bat and Straussy on a pair left that first straight one from Hilton House. Mm. Yeah. The crowds. Yeah. So I, very easy to look back at that. I, I probably think the best I ever batted probably in that Test match was that two four four at Melbourne. Actually, I think just as an innings. I know I was dropped a couple of times, but actually, the some of the shots I played and the way I played, I thought that's probably the best. I kind of, I mean, I, I don't know, Kolkata maybe 190, that 190, that stupid. Actually, I picked Kolkata. out your armour to bad innings as well. I thought that yeah, 100 maybe. was actually I very good. I mean, good. It's, 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 I mean, it's nice to be have that option of of being able to, yeah, one or two we can't actually remember, but it's um, it's hard to judge them. Well, you know, um, actually, I was working on Indian TV on that India series and uh, both Saurav Ganguly and Raul Dravid, I think both said at the time that that hundred you made an armoured bat was the best ever hundred they'd seen by an overseas batsman. Really? So yeah, there's there's, there's some uh, compliments for yeah, you. I reckon. Let, I actually sorry. I reckon the hundred ninety in Kolkata was just, like that was. Mm, I mean, yeah. apart from getting run out. I mean, that's I've, again. So cricket's such a stupid sport. I remember walking off there because everyone remember. I think, I think it was KP actually hit the ball at square leg and Cody just picked up and threw it down on strikers end. There was no chance of a run. We weren't even running. And I just, you know, talk about brain fade of all brain fades. I just lifted up the bat, thinking it's just, you know, I didn't want to get hit. I don't want the ball to hit my bat. I don't know why. Lifted the bat up, obviously hit the stumps. I was run out 190. And, I, you know, you just think, you know, I remember walking off there after, you know, I don't know how long that innings was, but I just, yeah, why, how did I do that? I sat there with a towel on my head, almost embarrassed myself. And that shouldn't be. You walk 190, you should be quite, you know, you should be quite happy. You take that every time you walk out there. Of course you would, but I was embarrassed. I was, how do I do such a stupid thing? Let's get some um, some of our uh, lovely guests on screen here. Will Gould, I've got on my list. Will, can we get you on the screen, or can you un if you unmute your mic? Hi there, Cookie. What was what was your favourite moment about the 2010-11 series, apart from scoring all those runs and batting in Brisbane? I was actually the Adelaide hundred bat was actually to back that up to get two three five and finish on Monday and then. To, you know, back it up there um, with a 140 odd there. That that first hour at Adelaide was incredible. You know, like you lose the toss, and you think, God, we're going to be in for a long day here. Yeah. And then, well, I, well, I can't. Your man, were they three for four? Two for three, I think. Yeah, because yeah, because they got two. Yeah, that was it. Two for three. Like just obviously Trotty's run out. Just mm. you know, that first five minutes of well, probably ten minutes in the end was just the most incredible. Yeah. I look back on that tour. 
and it was probably it was before real social media took part and obviously when you win in Australia you know just the amount of good times we had off the field obviously when you're winning games of cricket and you get to celebrate and there was a lot less you know like people weren't chasing everything with camera phones in terms of you know having a you know if you're having a picture of beer and stuff that we're going to send it into people the papers and we'll put it on twitter and everyone had kick up a fuss about it so it was that was it's probably the last most relaxed tour that kind of way and obviously when you're winning you you know it was incredible actually but the bit which have you seen the edge is when we sat on yeah, the yes. on, we sat yeah. on the edge we sat that, on the yeah. um scg as a group of players there and I, the, the footage didn't quite do it justice but we sat there for probably an hour and a half now just talking as a, as a squad of not just the players but obviously the backroom staff mm. obviously for like for me on a personal thing i'd come from you know a very poor tour before a full series summer before that to sit there three and four months later with the like the Compton med- medal there yeah. just thinking what an amazing how strange is this game and just seeing those lads there sitting there talking about their experience of the three months that was an incredibly special time yeah. thing and that's that's actually the one moment i'd go back to not kind of the last half an hour there we're probably getting a bit frustrated because they put on a few pointless runs but that yeah. hour that two or three hours in the change room there going out to the scg was was the moment that's all for me robin learmont says my main question having read alice's autobiography what role Graham Gooch played in your career as his as your coach and mentor? He was so hot on fitness and concentration. So was it that? Was that his big influence on you? Well, do you know? I reckon the biggest influence, apart, you know, you talk about the hard work and all that kind of thing, is 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 a bit of a bygone. But you know, we, we, it's kind of quite infamous in our sessions. We'd train like Gooch is an early talk about early birds. He he's up at four thirty almost every morning. He's asleep by nine every night. He's like he's that way and. He's, but so we did a lot of our sessions from 7.30 to 9 in the morning. He'd dog stick for an hour and a half with a lot of running, fitness inside that kind of session. But do you know what the, the biggest thing for me was? Just knowing that the bloke who you're talking to, it was in exactly the same, um, exactly the same position as you were. He opened the batting for England, he opened the batting for Essex and he captained England. And just being able to sit there and just talk, talk to him about it and we wouldn't be like it's not stuff which would be incredible it's just that reassurance it's just that reassurance for me like as a thing and actually the biggest like you know he told me the things that he said you know his big thing when he got out he used to just have a he'd sit there his pads on he didn't probably get 100 most times but he'd have his pads on and sit there and his way of dealing getting out was just answering his post for example just being relaxed and i i remember when sometimes like you know, I played a bad shot and stuff. He would never bollock me for it, ever, or ever like give you that. Like, he would just sit there. He would just, like, as long as he knew that I knew I'd made a mistake, or he'd be like, there's always runs tomorrow. And that kind of attitude of there's always runs tomorrow kind of really rubbed off for me, I think. He was my hero. He was the bloke I used to go and watch at Essex, the guy, the guy I watched on England on TV, and that, you know, that desk wanting him to do well. Then to have him like throwing balls at you at 7 30 in the morning, the amount of runs he had was just incredible so yeah he was i was very very lucky what was that was that the sort of proudest moment in a way one of your pride most proud moments when you went past him then test runs well actually james foster texted me saying he texted me and he said well now he you don't have to listen to a word he says but yeah yes it was surreal very very surreal i think it was a cover drive wasn't it off tim southy i think the moment was where i did it and very to think you scored more runs than in him was a very very strange moment. Catherine Goble, if you're if you're there, Catherine, are you there, Catherine? If you want to unmute yourself, 
and yes, ask you a question. Firstly, what prompted your decision to retire from England and uh, go back to scoring runs for Essex? And following on from that, what is there left to achieve, in your opinion? Well, well what prompted me to, to stop playing for England was that to be for me to be the best player I could become was throwing everything all in. It was it was those you know number hundreds of balls you're hitting, the hours you're putting in the gym, and having something to really strive for. And ultimately, towards the end, I, I didn't have that. You know, I, I probably hit slightly less balls than I should have done. I I didn't have anything really left. I didn't have anything left for me to, to go and achieve again. And it was about an 18-month process. Actually, that last 18 months, I remember talking to the guy, who, a bloke called Mark Borden, who's a psychologist, who'd done so much work. He do with the, he was involved with the England team. And then when he left, he still like work with me. And we tried to like get stuff to get my goat, you know, to get me going again and try and, and nothing, and nothing fell out and like nothing grabbed me. And I, and I felt like I was just playing for playing sake. And really, it's really sad because you're playing for England and it should be the be all and end all. And it is the be all and end all, but I just didn't have that, that last 2%, which I had all my career. Uh, I remember lying there in New Zealand, actually, in that tour, that tour, just after the Ashes. Obviously, I struggled in the Ashes apart from that un- that double hundred and I struggled on that pink ball tour. Um, so a two-test match tour, you know, it's kind of over before it ha- over before it started. I, I think I made double figures. And I remember talking to Chris Silverwood and, you know, I, I was ready, almost ready to go then. And he persuaded me, you no, know, hang in there and, you know, just give yourself more time. And I tried again. So... I just ultimately, like, you look in the mirror and I was like, I was done with it. And it's a really, really sad place to be because handing your cap back in was it. And obviously there was talk, you know, people saying, well, a couple of people I spoke to about it, why don't you have a sabbatical, why don't you take a six months off? But there's just something didn't seem right for me because I wasn't playing a huge amount of cricket. You know, I wasn't, you know, like we've just been a, a test match player. You're playing 12, 13 games a year. So it's not as if you're, you know, snowed under with stuff to do. So... It wasn't. I just didn't think going away for seven months would 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 recreate it. I think playing for England, you had to had to be all in, and and also it'd been it'd have been a bit of a strange situation for a the guys coming in and b you know the the question's still there. Are, are you going to come back? Uh, and it just didn't seem right. So I thought it was a clean break um, was the best thing for me. And it's 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 horrible in one sense actually saying you don't want to play for England again um, after loving it for as long as I did. And the reason I want to play for Essex because. Um, it's a big thing never to hit a ball again, isn't it? When you walk off playing for England, that cricket's such a big part of your life, just to suddenly go done. Um, and I chatted to, again, when this I was making the decision, I chatted to a couple of people in that situation, and a couple of them, not all of them, a couple of them said, you know, I'd love to have played a bit of county cricket just so you can kind of manage that process of being a, you know, international cricket player to, to a, you know, not being a cricket player. That kind of your identity had gone, so... Um, and, I, and I genuinely love playing for Essex. There's really good people there. So that's, you know, that enjoyment. That was an easy decision in my sense. Here's a question from Scott Moody before we get to one or two more of you on screen. Uh, Scott doesn't want to come on screen, but um, just very, very quickly, just what one would answer to these first two. Who's the best fast bowler you've faced? Is that Ryan Harris? Um, he'll be up there. The, the one, I can't do one word answers on this one. It depended how well okay. I was playing. Genuinely, okay. like if I was playing well, and I'm just saying, I reckon I, I would have no qualms of facing anyone, ever. Like I just thought, you know, if my and I had a lot of moving parts of my technique, 
as soon as my technique was out and someone could hammer that kind of thing in general the towards the end people coming around the wicket and shaping the ball away right or left arm i found that hard and, and then another question from scott it's a really interesting question is he said a friend of mine um asked sir don bratton what did he use to get himself out of a bad run of form and sir donald answered don't know never experienced a bad <laughs> run of form if my friend were to ask you the same question what advice would you give them how do you get out of a a bad run of form well, what do you do well see i now because i i feel as if i know my game pretty well it's just right go back to practice of the simple little things so it'd be like i'll go back to hitting underarms i'll go back to the simple thing is my head in the right position is my head going back to where the ball's going from can i hit the ball straight you know back where it comes from is uh and just basically just work on that that's all i'll do i'll just work on that and then on the it's more of a mental thing isn't it like that because ultimately your technique doesn't change a huge amount you know you know you look at people sitting in the screen of you know of, of, of you know say balls they nicked or something you know like they nicked off to second slip and you see them slow mode slow mode in the ball actually ironically nicking a ball to second slip isn't as bad as a player miss because ultimately you actually you're doing something you're doing you're actually hitting the ball mm. so you should actually look at the player misses and think what are you doing there but you don't you look at you look at the ball you nicked off so on the mental thing of being able to stay very strong and actually stay in the moment of just being able to focus on this ball coming. And that's a very hard skill. It's a very easy, cliche thing to do because when you're out of form, all you're thinking about is the negative thoughts, the bloke on your shoulder saying how bad you are. You've got no runs. You haven't got any runs for ages. You're going to get dropped. All that. That's just a, you know, a quick thing on your shoulder, the bloke's telling you. So being able to manage that and just say, right, I'm just going to focus on this ball and knowing that your technique is in a good enough place to hit the ball straight. And if you can do that, and the ability to grind that first half an hour to get in, you know, can you get in, even if you're on three or four runs for me, like some people, I remember listening to Graham Thorpe once said, if he was struggling for four, he'll try and hit every ball for four, the first, you know, if you're struggling for four, he'll try and hit every ball for four, for four that first few, because if you got up to 20, it's kind of a way, that was his way of doing it, my way would be right, can I bat for half an hour, can I literally just somehow survive, not even worry about my feet, can I survive for half an hour, it's amazing when you spend a little bit of time in the middle, that rhythm can come back quite quickly. Alex Gaywood says a lot is made of bowlers bowling in partnerships, but how important is knowing your batting partner? Do you feel the constant changing of your fellow opener after Strauss retirement affected your game? No, so I, 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 it didn't affect my game one little bit because the only, um, the only thing you the only thing, the, if you have a real solid start, I think it, not talking about the players, if it's a team, if you're, 40 for none a lot. The opposition feel that feel that thinking it's going to be a very long day in the field. And their their energies, they they there's a bowler, you'll know as a bowler, it's a long time ago, but thinking, oh Jesus, it's gonna be a long day. I've got a lot of miles to do. And you just naturally just hold in a little bit, you don't quite bowler that is more of like, all right, I'm just gonna stick in here and just stick in here. But if the opposition are 30 for three a lot, see actually I've got I've got the chance here to we can bowl them out today. We haven't got 150 overs in the dirt. We've only got 80 to do. And you, so in that way, I reckon that affected it in one sense. But, you know, I was out just as many times as the other bloke. So I can't use that as a thing. And also you're back with so many people, don't you? You're back so many times with the different people. No, not just, I didn't just back with Straussy, obviously trotting. Then I went back to Essex and played back with Essex. So I think there's more, maybe the only bit might have affected was the fact that those, we never didn't have those consistent, st solid starts. but. Do you know what? That's it didn't affect me. 
Who, who did you actually most enjoy batting with? I, I, I had no, I, I had no thing at all. Everyone had their different kind of things. Like, you know, I, you know, Trotty, that you know, meticulous fives worked well for that beer. I enjoyed batting with Trotty there. Strauss, obviously, we had a good thing. Uh, you know, KP, I, I just had to sit back and and react and, and relax. And not relax in one sense. He, he, we actually, I think we scored quite a lot of runs together because we were so different. Like he wanted to be the peacock strutting around, taking on the opposition. And he kind of t- took all the attention away from me. I kind of just slid under the radar. I got his singles, got him back on strike. You know, and he not he not nothing less than, you know, he, he, sorry, he all he wanted to do was be on strike. So I didn't mind if I didn't face a ball for like 30, you know, 20, 30 like, balls because it didn't bother me, but he wouldn't like that. So you know, actually we had a lot of good partnerships together. So but anyway, anyone you build a partnership, Nick Brown, we got, what do we get? 380 once at, for Essex and stuff. So yeah, it don't really matter who. Anytime you score runs, the partnership's good. A few people have asked about KP uh, this evening, so I might as well ask the, the KP question on behalf of quite a few people who've asked it. This is where my that... internet goes wrong. <laughs> <laughs> what about KP, uh, Alistair? I mean, do you regret what happened? Uh, do you do you get on well with it now? Have you made up? What what's, what's the situation? I haven't really I haven't really seen it much to be honest with you since um, that. Uh, Kind of that meeting, two thousand and fourteen. Look, I, I I do regret. I regret the situation cricket found itself in. Actually, I think it was, you know, as as a to be part of a decision where cricket is on the on the back page and the front page for all the wrong reasons. You know, I do regret that. I think that was, but I don't regret the decision at the time. If that makes sense, I you know every decision I've made as a captain. Even going back to when I captained badly. So I was making that decision, you know, again, on that, on that's not we'll talk KP in a minute, but every decision I made, I'll try to make for the good of the English cricket team. The, that KP thing became, became ugly because it was kind of, you know, I, I felt as if I got kind of, I got like kind of marked out as a bloke, the only person who made that decision a little bit. Um, and it became a bit of a, KP versus Cookie. Well, it probably it wasn't that. It was obviously I was part of that decision. Um, and I mean, I, you'd love to sit and ch- I, it'd be interesting to sit and chat with KP now. I mean, there's a lot. I think there's so much water under the bridge now. And uh, I saw him actually at Australia, England semi final the World Cup. I mean, it was you know we had a, a genuine nice five minute chat because we, we spent some, we spent ten years playing cricket together and, and got on absolutely fine. Obviously, when you get a bit of leadership and there's a bit of you know you're trying to make a decision, you know about the England cricket team thinking whether he was best in it or not uh, at that certain time. Of course, there's going to be some frictions, but, you know, I, I, I regret that it was handled the way it was handled. I don't regret the decision. And I think in hindsight, if, you know, if, if powers could be and we could have made, you know, different decisions on it of the, the fallout and the thing, you'd always think it'd be better because I regret the fact that it was over the papers for the, the wrong reasons, but um, but it well, is what it is, and you know life has to have to move on. Alistair, just, just looking ahead, we do talk back, you know, ten years to the Ashes last time, you know, England's last travel. That was their last travel in Australia. They've lost nine of their last ten matches there. How highly do you rate their chances of of doing something in Australia next time round? How, how difficult will it be? Oh, I, I think. <laughs> I think for the first time they're going with 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 an attack which 
has got a lot of variability to it, you know, like actually since for a while, you know, and, and I mean that like we obviously in 2013, we had, you know, attack with some, some, you know, some height and pace and bounce weren't bowling as well as, as they would, have, you know, we would have liked them. So, I, so if there's a big, the, the, the big ifs, there's a, the two big ifs about this. And I'm sure if you read my excellent column at times, you'd have, you'd have read it, Simon, but I think it's, you know, how how fit does every fast bowler stay? And I think that is on both sides, actually. And I think, you know, the the Australian, you know, this Australian Pat Cummings, Stark, Hazelwood, and I'm trying to forget. Well, I forget and Cummings. Cummings, Stark, Hazelwood, and obviously then you've got the line. Those four, if they, if they stay fit and, and are bowling well... I think Australia are a very hard side to bat on on those kind of wickets, um, to beat on those kind of wickets. I think if you know if start if there's a couple of injuries to those guys, I think that obviously clearly will weaken Australia. Um, that's just and I, and I and I don't quite know what their strength and depth like. And I think as soon as you, you took Stark out last time, you thought you know there there were options for England. Um, and it, it's the same in England. Is is Mark Wood going to be? Can we keep Woody fit, Archer, you know, like one of Jimmy and Broad, you know, or if, if ever if they can pick from the best six or seven bowlers and they're in form, I think that the bowling attack have got a chance to upset the Australian batting lineup. I actually, you know, we could have different options for Joe Roots to do it. Um, uh, and, I, and I suppose, you know, another one little sense, it depends what those wickets are like, aren't they? Because for the first time, for the first time, like, they're all dropping wickets pretty much, aren't they? Apart from the Gabba. So, you know, whack has gone, you know, the whack is going to be a, a drop in again, which will be slow. Uh, well, it's got, it, it's gone through though, the whacker actually. In it? Well, every, drop, every drop. Yeah. Not the the whacker. Whacker, the, Sorry, not the whacker, but the, the new ground. The first stadium. So, look, I, I, look, I, that's a, to me, that's what, what it is. And obviously if England, if they run into Steve Smith, who is playing as well as he can, Mm. Uh, play as Jacob's just written there is how Steve Smith performs will go a long way I think Smith you know Smith's in any kind of form then he brings such a, a huge amount of runs to Australian cricket that yeah you'd say Australia are going to be favourites for it but I think England will have their best chance for a while I mean Broadie's said didn't he on our show Simon that um, you know, it's not about bowling; it's about runs. In the end, winning the Ashes is about making lots of runs in Australia. Well, I, I do love, I do love a bowler who obviously says that, and a batter will say the <laughs> other way. Like the last time, obviously, we went there, we never got twenty wickets. So like, in two thousand seventeen, we didn't get close to taking twenty wickets. But one thing Australia did do very well, and ha- have done very well, is when they got in, they got big, big runs. So, you know, um, you know, for England to go there. Um, someone is going to have to score big runs is, is an obvious thing, but I think purely on a on a on a bowling side, we, to win a test match you have to take twenty wickets. Of course, you've got to score big runs. So I think um, I think yeah, I think England got the best chance for a while. So Alistair Cook there, you know, cautiously uh, optimistic about England's chances in a year's time. Of course, there's an enormous amount of cricket to play before then. There's a World T Twenty Cup before. Then there is a series against India, home and away series in Sri Lanka, you know, bags, stacks of cricket. And we always t- tend to look ahead at the Ashes. But we had Alistair Cook with us. It was a great chance to get him to look back and to, to look ahead. He's been to Australia. You know, he's had the highs. He's had the lows of, of playing in Australia. He really has, you know, 2010-11 and the lows of the, of the last two tours. 
you know, he, he says there that you know England got their sort of best chance for a while. Well, you know, when you look back, of course, they've lost nine in the last ten Test matches in Australia. So in a way, he's right. Uh, but uh, clearly, it's going to be a massive challenge uh, for England uh, next year with the strength of the Australian batting, like the Smith and Labuschagne and, and Warner, who want to um, you know really have a decent series after what happened last time in England. And of course, the bowlers they've got the tremendous. Uh, pace bowlers and Nathan Lyon as well. They've got you know some some really strong options there, and that's the, the test that England uh, are going to face. You know, and I, I still think I still think back to the you know this summer that England they lost a test match to the West Indies. Could you see Australia losing a a home test match to the West Indies? Personally, I can't. Um, they dropped a test match in South Africa as well. Uh, Pakistan at times. I mean, they probably should have won the Old Trafford test match. That that fantastic innings by. Uh, Butler and Wokes that saved England on the final day. So I, I think there's some, still some flaws in this England side, which they need to try to work out over the next year if they're to go to Australia and challenge them uh, next winter. Yeah, I agree. And just watching the Australia-India one-day series, uh, which is still going on, Australia dominated the first two games. India made a bit better fist of it on in the, in the third match. But Again, you have to admire the the strength of those, uh, particularly those Australian bowlers. I mean, Josh Hazelwood, some of the Australian commentators actually calling him, you know, as good as Glenn McGrath and and a bit quicker as well. And the same kind of bowler, just absolutely relentless. And, and Pat Cummings, of course, as well. Mitchell Stark doesn't look quite as, as hot as he has sometimes been, but he does. he's a bit prone to inconsistency. And then, you know, their batting definitely coming together. An interesting new player coming into their side, actually, for the last of these one-day internationals, a, a guy called Cameron Green, who is from Western Australia. He's six foot six. He's already made almost a double hundred in a Shield game, more like 190. And he bowls at close to 90 miles an hour. So he's a sort of Ben Stokes kind of character. And actually, Australia haven't got a great history of really talented all-rounders who can influence the game or impact on the game with both bat and ball. Uh, he's one to look out for, actually. He's just made his one-day international debut, so it's early days. But he could be a, a, a real force in a year's time. Gets lots of bounce from a shortish run-up and definitely gets the ball through, as well as being a, a top-order batsman with nimble feet and, and, and fluidity, a bit like Zach Crawley. So, you know, talented player. So many talented players in Australia at the moment to look out for. Um, just one final thing about Cook. Of course, we have this... Uh, weekly quiz with each of the players that we have on our live stream called How Well Do You Know Yourself? And uh, the leaderboard at the moment topped by Jack Leach and Sophie Eccleston, who did a double act and scored eight out of ten. And uh, some also rans, Mark Wood, Phil Tufnell, Stuart Brawl, Joe Root, coming a little bit lower down the table. So how would Alistair Cook do? Well, here's his effort. Here's the first question. This is this is a gentle half volley for you. Okay. How many tests did you win as England captain? You captained England 59 times. How many tests did you win? It's not a good start. I'll come back to that one. Move on. I'll, I'll think about that. Okay. Oh, well, okay. Well, let, well, I'll tell you what. We'll give, him, we'll give him a bit of time to think about it. We will come back to it. Right. Second question. Who dismissed you in your first first-class innings? Oh, my gosh. Chris Cairns? No, it was his opening partner. I don't know. It's not a good start, this. Charlie Shrek. Ah. Question number three. Well, this is a true or false question. 
Um, so you've got a 50-50 chance of getting this right. You captained England 59 times, as I mentioned. Still not quite sure how many of them you won. You won the toss more times than you lost it. True or false? You captained England 59 times. You won the toss more times than you lost it. True, True or false? True. It's false. You won 28 and you lost 31. Right, not out two. <laughs> um, okay, how many runs did you score in your 100th test match? Uh, I got naught in the second innings. Correct. I'll give you half a mark for that. Perth, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know, 71. We'll give 70, you that. Oh, we'll, we'll give you that. We'll give you that. 72, <laughs> actually. 72, we'll give you that. You're just being like kind now. What is that? One out of three so far. Yeah. I'm going to go 22 to test match wins. I hope it's I hope it's more, unless it sounds out of worse. 24. Close, but not close enough. Next question. You scored 776 runs in the 2010-11 Ashes series. What was your lowest score in the series? 67, 235, not out, 148, 32, 82, 189, and... 13? He's got it! Two out of five, okay, right. This ain't easy. I'm going to go back and watch the other one. What about this one? Um, You played 290... Did you ask Mark Wood who his first test wicket was or something? No, we asked him things like how many times did he fall over the most in a, in a, in a spell and stuff. It's quite really? hard. Yeah. You played 291 test innings. Did you hit more sixes or score more ducks? <laughs> That's a good question. I thought it was 11 sixes. Right. Okay. That's actually correct. So that's a half yeah. a point. I, so I, I have to say I must have got naught more than 11 times. <laughs> That's all right, that's quite a good one, actually. If I, I mean, not, I mean, not, I don't know anything about this stuff. Nine. Right, let's move on. <laughs> so that was that two eight. out of six or something? Out of six, yeah. By the way, here's the next question. You made 218 <laughs> runs in your last test match at the Oval. You scored five test match double hundreds. How many other times did you score 200 plus runs in a test match? How many other times? Yeah, so that's six times. How many other times did you score two hundred plus runs in a test match? And I'll give you, I'll give you a, um, a a spread here of four, five, six, or seven. I was going to say two. So um, I remember one. I remember doing it once. I got ninety odd and a hundred against Shrankra Lords. That's one. Kolkata. Did I get? I mean, no, I didn't get many second innings. Medabad. Did I get more than 20 odd in Medabad? I'm going to go Medabad 2. I don't know. I go. I was going to say 4. Say if 4. I, say 4. You I'll got it right. Four. We'll give you 4 for that. Okay. I was, gonna, so I was actually going to say 2. So, like, if you 3 out of 7. So, question 8. What is this breed of sheep? It's a Suffolk. Very good. He's got it. Very good. I'm impressed. And what about. Have you got any of those? Yes, yeah, so, thank God. I mean, you could. You, there's hundreds of breeds of sheep, so I could look very stupid. Yeah, no, we have some Suffolk. Yeah. Four was that four out of eight? It's, yeah. it's bad that I knew, the, I knew the sheep ones straight away, and I could not know any of the other ones. Ninth question: What was your strike rate in one day internationals? And I'll give you this to the nearest two. Your strike rate in one day internationals. I, I think it just sneaked under seventy, didn't it? So I'm going to go seventy. I think it was sixty-nine right at the end but I reckon it was it was good for a bit I'll go 70 
Uh, you've undersold yourself, Alistair. 77.13. Nah, that's right. In one, in one day international cricket, yeah. Four out of nine. So if you don't get this right, you become, you'll become you come bottom. That's fine. I can deal with that. Right, okay. The last I got the question. important one. I got the important one right. The, the last question. What, the sheep? Yeah. The last question. Who has come closest to, be- to beating your incredible yo-yo test score of 22.2? Which England player has come closest so to I don't, I, it's emulating it? Twenty two point two is the highest I've done, but um, who's the closest? Johnny Bairstow? It's not Stuart Broad or James Anderson. I can tell you that. Correct. I don't know. I don't know who's got closest. I would be interesting to see what Zach Crawley gets and Josh Butler. But I don't know. Mm. I'll come off them. Who was I'm it? I'm afraid you have Joe Root. No, that's got. I don't know where you're getting your stuff from. Bill really? Scott. Horses no, mouth. Dodgy data. Dodgy data. Really. I don't know. Rooty's all right. I don't think he's. You'd have thought. Anyway, I'm going and to. The, and, the, and the bonus question from Scotty was, how big was the ice bucket you immersed your balls in when you were hitting <laughs> the nuts at Cardiff in 2015? <laughs> it's more when the embarrassment of the doctor having a look at them. That was the worst bit. After that was that wasn't a very pleasant moment. So I don't know. We'll have to give you a sort of half round of applause for that. I can take that. You only got. Four out of ten there. Very, very tough questions, I thought. So four out of ten for Alistair Cook. And really, he only sounded confident with the the sheep question. (laughs) So uh, interesting. But uh, so we've still got Jack Leach and Sophie Eccleston on top of the table. And we have Graham Swan now arriving on Thursday, the 3rd of December. So tomorrow, if you're listening on Wednesday, uh, he's coming at seven o'clock. So please try and join us for not only his chat about the Ashes of 2010-11 and his career, but also taking out our quiz. Go to worldsbestcricketclub.com, sign up there. It's £6 a month to be part of our club, but there's so much on offer for that £6, four live events, lots of podcasts and blogs, and also the chance to win signed memorabilia as well. So please try and join us for that. And just a final little thank you to Beer52, who've supported us through November. Beer52.com slash cricket. You can get your free eight craft beers if you haven't already signed up. Really interesting selection of craft beers that they supply. They are the UK's number one craft beer supplier. And the craft beer comes from all over the world. It's been really great to taste it over the last month. So go to that website beer52.com slash cricket and you can get your eight free beers delivered straight to your door for just £5.95. Okay, Simon Mann, thank you very much for your time again and of course we'd like to thank Alistair Cook for giving up his time eventually to appear in the Virtual Cricket Club. We're looking forward to Graham Swan Thursday the 3rd of December. Hope you can join us. Thanks for listening. Thanks very much for listening. Please join us for Graham Swan Thursday evening, 7 o'clock. Sports Social Podcast Network.